welcome back to this evening's assembly of the Semi-Gelatinous Literary Society. It is I, your host of horror and mortician of madness, Elmer the Embalmer, here to delight. Bjorn and I are so pleased to be back among our irregular gaggling of ghouls for part two of H.P. Lovecraft's classic tale of insanity, death, and dolphins. So, pinch your nose and prepare your gray matter for a second dive into the depths of depravity and doom with the conclusion of The Temple. The next day, I ascended to the conning tower and commenced the customary searchlight explorations. Northward, the view was much the same as it had been all the four days since we had sighted the bottom, but I perceived that the drifting of the U-29 was less rapid. As I swung the beam around to the south, I noticed that the ocean floor ahead fell away in a marked declivity and bore curiously regular blocks of stone in certain places, disposed as if in accordance with definite patterns. The boat did not at once descend to match the greater ocean depth, so I was soon forced to adjust the searchlight to cast a sharply downward beam. Owing to the abruptness of the change, a wire was disconnected, which necessitated a delay of many minutes for repairs. But at length, the light streamed on again, flooding the marine valley below me. I'm not given to emotion of any kind, but my amazement was very great when I saw what lay revealed in that electrical glow. And yet, as one reared in the best culture of Prussia, I should not have been amazed, for geology and tradition alike tell us of great transpositions in oceanic and continental areas. What I saw was an extended and elaborate array of ruined edifices, all of magnificent, though unclassified architecture and in various stages of preservation. Most appeared to be of marble, gleaming whitely in the rays of the searchlight, and the general plan was of a large city at the bottom of a narrow valley, with numerous isolated temples and villas on the steep slopes above. Roofs were fallen and columns were broken, but there still remained an air of immemorially ancient splendor, which nothing could efface. Confronted at last with the Atlantis I had formerly deemed largely a myth, I was the most eager of explorers. At the bottom of that valley, a river once had flowed, for as I examined the scene more closely, I beheld the remains of stone and marble bridges and seawalls and terraces and embankments once verdant and beautiful. In my enthusiasm, I became nearly as idiotic and sentimental as poor Clenzie, and was very tardy in noticing that the southward current had ceased at last, allowing the U-29 to settle slowly upon the sunken city as an aeroplane settles upon a town of the upper earth. I was slow, too, in realizing that the school of unusual dolphins had vanished. In about two hours, the boat rested in a paved plaza, close to the rocky wall of the valley. On one side, I could view the entire city as it sloped from the plaza down to the old riverbank on the other side. In startling proximity, I was confronted by the richly ornate and perfectly preserved facade of a great building, evidently a temple. 
hollowed from the solid rock. Of the original workmanship of this titanic thing, I can only make conjectures. The facade of immense magnitude apparently covers a continuous hollow recess, for its windows are many and widely distributed. In the center yawns a great open door, reached by an impressive flight of steps and surrounded by exquisite carvings like the figures of bacchanals in relief. Foremost of all are the great columns and frieze, both decorated with sculptures of inexpressible beauty, obviously portraying idealized pastoral scenes and processions of priests and priestesses bearing strange ceremonial devices in adoration of a radiant god. The art is of the most phenomenal perfection, largely Hellenic in idea, yet strangely individual. It imparts an impression of terrible antiquity, as though it were the remotest rather than the immediate ancestor of Greek art. Nor can I doubt that every detail of this massive product was fashioned from the virgin hillside rock of our planet. It is palpably a part of the valley wall, though how the vast interior was ever excavated I cannot imagine. Perhaps a cavern or series of caverns furnished the nucleus. Neither age nor submersion has corroded the pristine grandeur of this awful fane, for fane indeed it must be, and today, after thousands of years, it rests, untarnished and inviolate, in this endless night and silence of an ocean chasm. I cannot reckon the number of hours I spent in gazing at the sunken city with its buildings, arches, statues, and bridges, and the colossal temple with its beauty and mystery. Though I knew that death was near, my curiosity was consuming, and I threw the searchlight's beam about in eager quest. The shaft of light permitted me to learn many details, but refused to shew anything within the gaping door of the rock-hewn temple, and after a time I turned off the current, conscious of the need of conserving power. The rays were now perceptibly dimmer than they had been during the weeks of drifting, and, as if sharpened by the coming deprivation of light, my desire to explore the watery secrets grew. I, a German, should be the first to tread those eon-forgotten ways. I produced and examined a deep-sea diving suit of joined metal, and experimented with the portable light and air regenerator. Though I should have trouble in managing the double hatches alone, I believed I could overcome all obstacles with my scientific skill and actually walk about the dead city in person. On August 16th, I effected an exit from the U-29 and laboriously made my way through the ruined and mud-choked streets to the ancient river. I found no skeletons or other human remains, but gleaned a wealth of archaeological lore from the sculptures and coins. Of this I cannot now speak save to utter my awe at a culture in the full noon of glory, when cave dwellers roamed Europe and the Nile flowed unwatched into the sea. Others, guided by this manuscript, if it shall ever be found, must unfold the mysteries at which I can only hint. I returned to the boat as my electric batteries grew feeble, resolved to explore the rock temple on the following day. 
on the 17th, as my impulse to search out the mystery of the temple waxed still more insistent, a great disappointment befell me, for I found that the materials needed to replenish the portable light had perished in the mutiny of those pigs in July. My rage was unbounded, yet my German sense forbade me to venture unprepared into an utterly black interior, which might prove the lair of some indescribable marine monster or a labyrinth of passages from whose windings I could never extricate myself. All I could do was to turn on the waning searchlight of the U-29, and with its aid walk up the temple steps and study the exterior carvings. The shaft of light entered the door at an upward angle, and I peered in to see if I could glimpse anything, but all in vain. Not even the roof was visible, and though I took a step or two inside after testing the floor with a staff, I dared not go farther. Moreover, for the first time in my life, I experienced the emotion of dread. I began to realize how some of poor Cleansy's moods had arisen, for as the temple drew me more and more, I feared its aqueous abysses with a blind and mounting terror. Returning to the submarine, I turned off the lights and sat thinking in the dark. Electricity must now be saved for emergencies. Saturday the 18th, I spent in total darkness, tormented by thoughts and memories that threatened to overcome my German will. Clensy had gone mad and perished before reaching this sinister remnant of a past unwholesomely remote and had advised me to go with him. Was, indeed, fate preserving my reason only to draw me irresistibly to an end more horrible and unthinkable than any man has dreamed of? Clearly, my nerves were sorely taxed, and I must cast off these impressions of weaker men. I could not sleep Saturday night, and turned on the lights regardless of the future. It was annoying that the electricity should not last out the air and provisions. I revived my thoughts of euthanasia and examined my automatic pistol. Toward morning, I must have dropped asleep with the lights on, for I awoke in darkness yesterday afternoon to find the batteries dead. I struck several matches in succession and desperately regretted the improvidence which had caused us long ago to use up the few candles we carried. After the fading of the last match I dared to waste, I sat very quietly without a light. As I considered the inevitable end, my mind ran over preceding events and developed a hitherto dormant impression which would have caused a weaker and more superstitious man to shudder. The head of the radiant god in the sculptures on the rock temple is the same as that carven bit of ivory which the dead sailor brought from the sea and which poor Clensy carried back into the sea. I was a little dazed by this coincidence, but did not become terrified. It is only the inferior thinker who hastens to explain the singular and the complex by the primitive shortcut of supernaturalism. The coincidence was strange, but I was too sound a reasoner to connect circumstances which admit of no logical connection, or to associate in any uncanny fashion the disastrous events which had led from the victory affair to my present plight. Feeling the need for more rest, I took a sedative and secured some more sleep. My nervous condition was reflected in my dreams, for I seemed to hear the cries of drowning persons, and to see dead faces pressing against the portholes of the boat. And among the dead faces was the living, mocking face of the youth with the ivory image. 
I must be careful how I record my awakening today, for I am unstrung, and much hallucination is necessarily mixed with fact. Psychologically, my case is most interesting, and I regret that it cannot be observed scientifically by a competent German authority. Upon opening my eyes, my first sensation was an overmastering desire to visit the Rock Temple, a desire which grew every instant, yet which I automatically sought to resist through some emotion of fear which operated in the reverse direction. Next there came to me the impression of light amidst the darkness of dead batteries. I seemed to see a sort of phosphorescent glow in the water through the porthole which opened toward the temple. This aroused my curiosity, for I knew of no deep-sea organism capable of emitting such luminosity. But before I could investigate, there came a third impression which, because of its irrationality, caused me to doubt the objectivity of anything my senses might record. It was an oral delusion, a sensation of rhythmic, melodic sound of some wild yet beautiful chant or choral hymn, coming from the outside through the absolutely soundproof hull of U-29. Convinced of my psychological and nervous abnormality, I lighted some matches and poured a stiff dose of sodium bromide solution, which seemed to calm me to the extent of dispelling the illusion of sound. But the phosphorescence remained and I had difficulty in repressing a childish impulse to go to the porthole and seek its source. It was horribly realistic, and I could soon distinguish by its aid the familiar objects around me, as well as the empty sodium bromide glass of which I had no former visual impression in its present location. The last circumstance made me ponder, and I crossed the room and touched the glass. It was indeed in the place where I had seemed to see it, now I knew that the light was either real or part of a hallucination so fixed and consistent that I could not hope to dispel it. So abandoning all resistance, I descended to the conning tower to look for the luminous agency. Might it not actually be another U-boat offering possibilities of rescue? It is well that the reader accept nothing which follows as objective truth, for since the events transcend natural law, they are necessarily the subjective and unreal creations of my overtaxed mind. When I attained the conning tower, I found the sea in general far less luminous than I had expected. There was no animal or vegetable phosphorescence about, and the city that sloped down to the river was invisible in blackness. What I did see was not spectacular, not grotesque or terrifying, yet it removed my last vestige of trust in my consciousness. For the door and windows of the undersea temple, hewn from the rocky hill, were vividly aglow with a flickering radiance, as from a mighty altar flame far within. Later incidents are chaotic. As I stared at the uncannily lighted door and windows, I became subject to the most extravagant visions. Visions so extravagant that I cannot even relate them. I fancied that I discerned objects in the temple, objects both stationary and moving, and seemed to hear again the unreal chant that had floated to me when first I awakened. And over all rose thoughts and fears which centered in the youth from the sea and the ivory image whose carving was duplicated on the frozen columns of the temple before me. I thought of poor Clenzy and wondered where his body rested with the image he had carried back into the sea. He had warned me of something, and I had not heeded, 
but he was a soft-headed Rhinelander who went mad at troubles a Prussian could bear with ease. The rest is very simple. My impulse to visit and enter the temple has now become an inexplicable and imperious command, which ultimately cannot be denied. My own German will no longer controls my acts, and volition is henceforth possible only in minor matters. Such madness it was which drove Clenzie to his death, bareheaded and unprotected in the ocean. But I am a Prussian, and a man of sense, and will use to the last what little will I have. When first I saw that I must go, I prepared my diving suit, helmet, and air regenerator for instant donning, and immediately commenced to write this hurried chronicle in the hope that it may someday reach the world. I shall seal the manuscript in a bottle and entrust it to the sea as I leave the U-29 forever. I have no fear, not even from the prophecies of the madman Clancy. What I have seen cannot be true, and I know that this madness of my own will at most lead only to suffocation when my heir is gone. The light in the temple is a sheer delusion, and I shall die calmly like a German in the black and forgotten depths. This demonic laughter, which I hear as I write, comes only from my own weakening brain. So I will carefully don my diving suit and walk boldly up the steps into that primal shrine, that silent secret of unfathomed waters and uncounted years. Well, that didn't leave us with many answers at the end, did it? But it sure is creepy. I wonder what may be in that temple down at the bottom of Atlantis or whatever that may be. All I know is, I really hope one day there's a part three, and it's led by dolphins. Beyond tells me that popular podcasts have segments, whatever that may be, and he suggests I perhaps answer some listener questions, and I said... Okay, and here we are, and I'm calling this segment Mortuary School. Is that good, Bjorn? Can we call it Mortuary School? Either way, we have a couple of messages here. Uh, one, Bjorn, who is this first message from? Okay, is, is this Eli? E- Eli asks, Elmer, what is your favorite pizza topping? Well, I I don't really know. I I like everything on my pizza, so long as it's a tombstone. (laughs) Yes, and I have another message here. Bjorn, does this say it's from a Nora? Nora asks, Elmer, why do you look like you do? Well, dear Nora, I look like I do due to many years of care and careful primping. Uh, it's a, a skin care regime, uh, and uh, I, I may be criticized by some of our listeners for being a little too corporate here, but old Jasper's mortician wax is the secret to my youthful glow. So... That's it. That's the mortuary school. If you have more questions, send them to us. Uh, That's semi-gelatinous-literary-society at gmail.com. And if you get that correct, you win an award.
Join us next time at the mortuary, folks. Uh, we'll have a special tale that will be a spooky haunted house, perhaps. A little different from the ocean, but uh, still dreary, still scary, and still spooky. So until next time, stay awful. The Semi-Gelatinous Literary Society is a production of Elmer the Embalmer. Episodes are released irregularly, often on the occasion of a full moon, lunar eclipse, or ritual sacrifice. The Semi-Gelatinous Literary Society is open to original short story submissions. If you dare, send your stories to Elmer by emailing semigelatinousliterarysociety at gmail.com. Rest assured, Bjorn will be reading him every single missive we receive. <laughs>